Well, we come now to our introductions to systematic theology lessons. Again, we've been looking at the major essential doctrines of our faith, and we are now coming to the end of our section on the doctrine of the law of God. And here we've spent a little bit more time than other doctrines because we've not only considered just the nature of the law, categories, uses of the law, but then we've also taken the time to briefly look at each of the Ten Commandments, wherein God's moral law is summarized for us. Today, we now arrive at the Tenth Commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, since this is just introductory material, there's just two points that I want to highlight for us today. First, I want us to look at the wording of the commandment itself. And then secondly, I wanted to consider this commandment's relationship to the other nine commandments. So first, let's consider the language of the commandment. And really, we just need to look at that word covet, which is after all the key word. If you look at the primary meaning of the Hebrew word that is translated as covet, it essentially means to desire or to take pleasure in something or someone. By itself, it's a neutral word, meaning that this desire can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what it is you are desiring. The same is also true of the Greek word that is used often in the New Testament that is translated as covet. For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. Epi, epithemia is the Greek there. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Here Paul is referring to the Tenth Commandment. And obviously, in this context, to covet or to desire is spoken of as sinful. God says, don't do it. But in Philippians or, yeah, Philippians 1, Paul can use the same Greek word that is used in Romans 7 to express a good desire. There he writes, For, uh, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, my epithemia, is to depart and to be with Christ. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Well, obviously, Paul's desire to be uh, with Christ was far, a far better prospect than remaining here. And so we see that this word translated as covet or to desire here is a good thing. Thus, Adam Clark writes, in light of all this, that coveting is an earnest and strong desire after a matter on which all the affections are, consecrated, are concentrated and fixed, whether the thing be good or bad. This is what we commonly term covetousness, which word is taken both in a good and bad sense. So when the scripture says that covetousness is idolatry, it will also say that covet earnestly the best things, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. So we find that this disposition is sinful or holy according to the object on which it is fixed. Beloved man was created with internal desires. And originally, Adam's desires were pure and aimed at good things. 
But obviously that changed. Belhemus Brockle writes, man is not self-sufficient. He cannot satisfy himself with himself. He is but an empty vessel, only capable of receiving something. He must find his fulfillment by matters which are exterior to himself, both according to soul and body. He must have food, drink, air, and light, if it be well with his body. And according to his soul, he must have something spiritual and infinite, that is God himself, in order for his infinite desire to be satisfied. In order to be fulfilled, God has created an innate desire within man. This desire, considered in and of itself, was a perfect desire. As long as man was in the state of perfection, that desire was directed toward the right objects in a right manner. In regard to the soul, his desire was only directed toward God in order to be continually satisfied in having fellowship with and finding delight in him. And as far as the body was concerned, his desire was directed toward that which it needed. It was the food of Christ's soul to do the will of the Father, John 4, 34. And according to the body, he had a desire for temporal food and drink. He hungered, Matthew 4, 2, and he thirsted, John 19, 28. However, after man had sinned, desire remained, but it has been distorted and corrupted, both as to the manner in which it functions as well as relative to its objects. He has no desire after God, and his desires are therefore not directed toward God as being the satisfaction of his soul, which, by the way, is what we mean by spiritual death. Okay, some of you are watching on Facebook. His desire is after this world, whereby he seeks to satisfy his spiritual soul. And according to the body, he has unlawful desires towards that which is unlawful in and of itself. Those desires furthermore extend themselves toward forbidden objects. And this is the sin forbidden in this commandment, end quote. So we see that since this word covet or desire can express a good thing or a bad thing, we have to consider the context in which it is used. And since the coveting that is spoken of here in the 10th commandment is obviously forbidden, you shall not covet, God must have in mind a coveting or desiring of objects that are either off limits for us and or not to be desired in some sort of devious way. Which is why I believe the 10th commandment doesn't just stop at you shall not covet, but goes on to name those things that are either off limits to us or not to be desired in some devious way. Thus it goes on to say not to covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, manservant, maidservant, and so on. Adam Clark continues, In this command, the covetousness which is placed on forbidden objects is that which is prohibited and condemned. To covet in this sense is intensely to long after in order to enjoy as property the person or thing coveted. He breaks this command who by any means endeavors to deprive a man of his house or farm by some underhand and clandestine bargain. Clandestine meaning you're secretly trying to deceive someone. What is called in some countries taking a man's house and farm over his head. He breaks it also who lusts after his neighbor's wife and endeavors to ingratiate himself into her affections by striving to lessen her husband and her esteem. And he breaks it who endeavors to possess himself of the servant's cattle of another in any clandestine or unjust, unjustifiable way. 
This is a most excellent moral precept, the observance of which will prevent all public crimes. For he who feels the force of the law which prohibits the inordinate desire of anything that is the property of another can never make a breach in the peace of society by acting of wrong, by an act of wrong to any of its feeblest members, end quote. So that is the coveting or desiring that is forbidden in this commandment. But then that raises a second question, and that is, isn't this type of coveting or desiring already expressed in the other commandments? I mean, if you think about it, for example, we just recently looked at the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Isn't coveting your neighbor's wife covered in that commandment? In fact, if you remember, we talked about it. Recall that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is correcting this faulty and superficial understanding of the law that many held in those days who thought that the seventh commandment only prohibited any external bodily act of adultery. And yet in the true spirit of the law, Jesus points out that, hey, even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And by the word, way, the word translated here as lustful intent in the ESV is actually a single Greek word, and it's our, the verb form of our word, epithemia. And so clearly, desires of the heart, in this case, an unlawful desire for a woman who is off limits, was already addressed in the seventh commandment. Think about the tenth commandment's prohibition of coveting your neighbor's stuff. Didn't we cover that in the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not steal? Of course we did. So here's the question. Why repeat then this prohibition against sinful desires here in the Tenth Commandment? Why make a commandment in which the nature of coveting itself is highlighted? If it's already, if the coveting evil desires has already been covered in the previous commandments. Well, I think the argument could be made that as God is wrapping up the summary of his moral law, he is now reminding and highlighting for us the extent of the law and the demand that it has on our lives. As we've noted in the past, the Ten Commandments do not seem to be given to us in some sort of random order. There's a reason why the first commandment is the first and not the sixth. There's a reason why the first four commandments are grouped together and the last six are grouped together. Two tables of the law, love God, love your neighbor. And so I think there's something to be said why this commandment is now the last of the 10. In the 10th commandment, this is God's closing statement, if you will, to reveal a very profound and important point to consider when we look at the entire moral law. Ronald Wallace writes, God in the first commandment makes a total demand upon the heart and soul and strength and life of his people. Then in the next eight commandments, he defines all the areas of life in which he seeks for them to express this devotion and commitment. And then in the last commandment, he makes another total and radical demand, reminding us that if we're going to serve God at all in these areas of life on which he has laid his hand, we must serve him with the heart as well as with the outward life. We must obey him in spirit as well as in letter. 
Therefore, though this commandment adds nothing new to what has already been implied in all the other commandments, it brings out everything that is most important in the sight of God. And it sends us back again to the other commandments with a new understanding of their meaning. It keeps us from becoming superficial. End quote. Moorcraft makes this interesting observation when you consider the way that the uh, Heidelberg Catechism is laid out, as well as the larger catechism, and it supports this understanding. Notice how the Heidelberg Catechism addresses the Tenth Commandment. Notice the questions that are grouped with the Tenth Commandment. Question 113 says, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the least inclination or thought against any of God's commandments ever enter into our heart, but that with our whole heart we continually to hate all sin and take pleasure in all righteousness. Do you hear that? They're asking a question about the Tenth Commandment and what it requires, and they answer it concerns how we approach all of God's law, any of God's commandments. And then question 114, can those who are converted to, to God keep these commandments perfectly? Why are they asking that question now? Because the 10th commandment is concerned with the extent of the law. And their answer is no, but even the holiest man while in this life have only a small beginning of disobedience, Yet so with that earnest purpose, they begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. And then question 115, why then does God so strictly enjoin upon us the Ten Commandments, since in this life no one can keep them? And they answer first that all our life long we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and so the more earnestly seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And secondly, that we may continually strive and beg from God the grace of the Holy Spirit so as to become more and more changed into the image of God till we attain finally to full perfection after this life. So notice how the Heidelberg goes from the 10th commandment to these questions about keeping the whole law and keeping it perfectly. Hoxima writes that the 10th commandment quotes openly and directly points the finger to our inner life when it forbids us to covet. It points the finger directly at the inner life of the Christian, at his thoughts and desires, at his will, at his deepest heart. The 10th commandment in its very form, in its literal expression, very clearly claims the whole inner life of man. It is for that reason that the Heidelberg Catechism correctly sees in this 10th commandment the manifestation of the perfection of the law. And it is because of that character of the 10th commandment that the catechism with it joins the question, can anyone keep that law perfectly? Can the Christian keep that law of God without fail? And of course, for the same reason, the next question falls, what then is the use to preach the law of God if no one can keep it perfectly anyways? Well, the larger catechism does the exact same thing, follows the same pattern. After addressing the requirements and prohibitions of the 10th commandment in questions 146 through 148, it then asks this question in 149, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And it answers, no one is able either of himself or by any grace received in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And so you see there's this recognition in the 10th commandment. 
That is, God is wrapping up His summary of His moral law. He is reminding us of the all-embracing and profound nature of His law. And beloved, this is extremely important to keep in mind because there are many who tell us that the Ten Commandments were only concerned with external issues. According to these people, the Ten Commandments did not originally address questions of the heart and desires. And then they tell us that Jesus came along to reinterpret the law or to add to it and say, oh, this is, wasn't, it wasn't its original tent. Now let me add to that. And it is more about the heart. Beloved, that's wrong. And you'll hear this from dispensationalists. You'll hear it from New Covenant theologians. I've even heard it from some people who profess to be reformed. But as I said, it's dead wrong. As Calvin points out, it was actually those hypocritical Pharisees that Jesus was addressing that instilled into the people that very superficial view of the law that Jesus pronounced as a most dangerous delusion. And so in closing, I'll give you two quick reasons why this is important to understand and why it's dangerous if you don't understand this rightly. First, it gives people like the Pharisees this, this, this delusional sense of self-righteousness. That's the point that Jesus is raising against them. Oh, you think you have fulfilled the commandment because you haven't physically been with a woman. But I tell you, even if you lust in your heart with another woman, you have broken this commandment and sinned against God. You're not what you claim to be, Pharisees. And beloved, what does, such a, what does a delusional self-righteousness do? Same thing it did to the Pharisees. You'll have this very superficial understanding of who you are and of your nature and of your sinfulness. And when you fail to understand that, you'll fail to understand your need, your great need of a Savior. And then secondly, it insinuates, as Calvin writes, that the holiness of the fathers under the law was little else than hypocrisy. In other words, if the extent of the law in David's day, for example, went no further than external acts, then David or any other Old Testament servant was, was nothing more than a, than a hypocrite. That's it. That's as far as they got. Self-righteous hypocrites. Beloved, the 10th commandment is placed as a closing statement from God that such superficial understanding of his law is wrong and is absurd. God has always spoke to the soul, no less than the body. And the extent of God's moral requirements are no different under the old covenant than they are under the new. And so Paul can state in Romans 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Beloved, Jesus did not come to fix a problem with the law. The law is holy, it is good, it is righteous. The law does exactly what the law was intended to do by God. So what's the problem? It's not with the law, it's with you and me. It's with our hearts. Our rebellious and deceitful hearts it has always been the problem since the fall of Adam and always will be until Jesus returns. And as God, as he presently works out our salvation 
in this present time, he's beginning to restore in us this all-encompassing obedience, heart and soul, body and mind, which is emphasized for us here in the 10th commandment. And in the end, Christ will present his bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, a bride who will be holy and without blemish, body and soul, the whole man. See Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Well, my timer is blinking at me. So I hope that helps, not just with the 10th commandment, but again helps you in how you approach the whole law in your studies.